0: Our reading this morning is from Luke chapter two, verses one through 20. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea,
1: Well, as you heard in this really well-known Christmas text, I mean, if you grew up in church, this text is familiar. And I really think you just, just growing up in America, something about Luke 2 is gonna be familiar to you. It's, It's still somewhat pervasive in our culture. It's hard, it's been hard to escape. But the danger in a familiar text like this is that we would be so familiar with it that it would lose its all in some way. So I was really thinking about this text and praying about this text. And, and what, what jumped out to me is this verse 14 is the multitude of hosts were, were singing, the angels saying, peace among those with whom God is well pleased. And I, I just started thinking about peace. And if I, you know, if, if I had to pick a word, 10 words, 50 words <laughs> to describe the culture we live in today, peace would not be on that list. And as some of you know, Mike Graham and I have over the last year been overseeing a nationwide quantitative academic study on de-churching in America, trying to understand why people are leaving, where they're going, and what it might take to bring them back, which is especially pertinent for our context because we live in the sixth most de city in the United States, which means the world. And so our context, the, the, the majority of people we interact with outside of the church used to go to church, but don't anymore. And one of the things we learned, and we learned a few things, was that the mental health of this group of de people, especially de-churched evangelicals, is not good. Specifically, when you when you kind of zero in on anxiety, depression, and loneliness, those three things, we asked these thousands of people to self-assess. Rate yourself on a scale of one to ten, uh, zero to ten, and, and in these areas of anxiety, loneliness, and depression, zeros just I'm doing horrible. I experience nothing but, you know, depending on which one this is, anxiety, depression, or loneliness. Ten is like I'm totally fulfilled. Don't experience any of that. The the average score in those three questions was a 3.6, a self-assessment. And, and there are lots of reasons that people struggle with anxiety, depression, and loneliness, including their stories, their physiology, their psychology. But I don't think it's a stretch to take this, uh, this data as a strong indicator that internal peace is not something that this group of de church people is experiencing. And this the idea of peace... It took on a larger burden for me this week as I found out the 10th grade son of a buddy of mine decided to take his life. And, and he, by all accounts, was just an awesome kid and he was doing well in school and athletics and it was a total shock. But just a reminder that what we see on the outside is not always a true representation of what's going on inside people's hearts. You know, in, in this world, we're all longing for peace and we can, you know, we run to romantic relationships and finances and careers and children and in very extreme cases, even death, to find peace that we will not find if we're looking for peace anywhere other than Jesus Christ, which is exactly what this passage is about. And I know some people are, are thinking, man, Jim, this is a really Bummer of an introduction to an Advent sermon, and you would be right, but it. This is what I feel because in the Christmas season I see a lot of stress. I mean, it's a well-documented thing that heart attacks go, skyrocket towards the end of December. I mean, there's a cultural. We're in a a a, a cultural season of stress, and the. 2nd to 4th week of December if you want to get really accurate. And, and we don't know how to cope with the peace that we don't have. So if, if we can't find it, we run to everything from shopping and binging shows to alcohol and pornography. You know, we, we're going to either, we're going to, if we seek peace in the wrong areas, when we don't find it, and I do mean when we don't find it there, the only thing we're left to do is despair or cope in some way. But this passage, it tells us exactly where we can go for the peace that we long for. It tells us that, pre, that peace is not only accessible, it's guaranteed and promised for those who have faith in Jesus Christ. So I, I wanna walk through this passage and I, just, I, want to, I wanna see how the shepherds, they show us in this passage our need for peace, how Jesus provides that peace, and then for those who put their fe- faith in Jesus, that we become heralds of that peace. So first the shepherds show us our need for peace. There's a reason that Luke I think spends so much time and 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 ink on these shepherds. And if you've grown up in church and you're familiar with Psalm 23 or Jesus as our great shepherd, you might have an overly optimistic understanding of what a shepherd was like. <laughs> because in, in this context, shepherds were not this esteemed group of people. They were known for having corrupt morals. They were known, I, I read in one con- commentary, as having sticky fingers and loose morals. Like they, they they weren't this esteemed group of people. If this group of shepherds was any, any different than the other groups of shepherds that we know about from history, C- certainly Luke would have told us this group of shepherds they were different but we don't see that we have every reason to believe this group of shepherds just like the rest of the shepherds that we know about in their day so i think we can imagine middle of the night these shepherds are awake maybe enjoying a drink the, or two or three maybe maybe a drink that they did not uh, that wasn't theirs to enjoy maybe they took it from somewhere maybe they're in the middle of a really inappropriate joke and then the darkness cracks open The angel comes forth, the glory of God is shining all around this angel. What do you think would be the first thing to come out of the minds and the mouths of these shepherds? Well, my top five guesses, I can't say in church. (laughs) I mean, Luke says they were filled with great fear. They were terrorized. The glory of God is coming to this probably not, a group of not great character, maybe in the middle of doing something they shouldn't have done. So I, you know, when we sing Silent Night, there's a lot to appreciate, but (laughs) Silent Night is not the picture that I have here of these shepherds being confronted with this angel. And I I don't wanna move forward in the story without realizing that these shepherds, they represent us. They represent all of humanity because all of us, we live with some measure of fear because we know that we live in a fallen world that we can't control, that's first. I mean, we are all, we have to know this, one phone call, one doctor's appointment away from a very, very changed life. But in addition to that, we know At some level, just by living in creation, whether we know this consciously or subconsciously, that we are not living life the way that God wants us to live life. So the shepherds, they they really are a good sampling of the whole of human plight. (laughs) they're, They're well aware they're not in control when the angel comes forth, and they know that they're not living life the way that God wants them to live, and the result is fear. Now all of us, we live in active rebellion against God and when we are confronted with the least little glimpse of heaven, with God's holiness, we can't help but have a measure of fear. And that fear that we experience shows us the lack of peace that we're truly experiencing in this world. So this pretty much happens every time, almost every time that an angel shows up, people have, are filled with terror, they're filled with fear, they bow on the ground prostrate, they are tempted to worship these, these angels. I, you know, I, I've never seen an angel, I can't, I, I, I'm not, I, my hunch is they're not necessarily scary, they're heavenly. <laughs> and often when we're presented with heavenly, that can be very scary if we're living in a fallen world and not in accordance with the way that God wants us to live. So this is probably why so many people worship angels. One pastor likens the fear that you see in these in, in these shepherds and the stress that we experience in our life and the the, the fear and the, the symptoms that come from that stress to cracks and fractures in a bridge. So I, I don't know bridges, like someone like Ryan Cunningham would know bridges. But, and we don't have in Orlando big bridges that go across, you know, big rivers. But what I do understand about bridges is that every time there are hundreds, if not thousands, of little cracks and fractures in that bridge. They're invisible to the naked eye until stress is put on that bridge. When stress is put on that bridge, then these invisible fractures and cracks that have always existed now are visible to the naked eye. And so the same thing is true with us in this season. We have these cracks and these fractures in the foundation of our lives and it isn't until pressure is applied that these invisible cracks and fractures become visible. And this is a season in Christmas, this Christmas season is when pressure tends to be applied. That pressure can be financial, that pressure can come through strained family relationships, that pressure can just come through loss and just the, the sadness of a Christmas without something or someone you were used to having at Christmas. And when this stress is applied, when this pressure comes into our life, those cracks are revealed. They become visible. And the shepherds are seeing, I would say, instant cracks in their foundation. And we know this because of the fear, the terror that they're experiencing when they see these angels. They know something's not right. I mean, if if they had the feeling that everything was right in their life, they would not be experiencing the fear and the terror that they are when confronted with an angel surrounded by the glory of God. And so these, these kinds of fears that come into our life, either when pressure comes in or heaven in some way breaks into our life, I would say these are good and right fears because they are designed by God to lead us to Him. God wants us to see the cracks. God will bring pressure into our lives intentionally so that we can see the cracks and the fractures in our foundation so that we can be led to someone better who can give us the peace that we're looking for. So then you have the shepherds. They're they're in fear. <laughs> they, 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 they don't know what to do with the, the heaven that's broken into their world. But you have a whole other group of people here in the story, too. You have the people in Bethlehem. And so this group of people, they seem like everything is okay because the pressure has not been applied yet. And this is, this is problematic. I mean, it should in some ways make us want just enough pressure to be able to see that God is the only person from whom we can have the peace that we search for. So do you know why it is that Mary and Joseph had no place to stay in Bethlehem? Because everybody was too busy to know who it was that was coming to be born. Everybody was busy with the census. It wasn't that they didn't like Jesus or that they didn't believe in God or that they didn't know scripture. They were so busy with the census, catching up with friends and family that they did not even have time to consider the baby who was going to be born there. And they had every reason to be able to be on the lookout for this baby. They knew the prophecies. They knew this baby would come from the line of David. They knew that this baby would come from a virgin. They knew, and and that has been claimed already at this point, there was, there was probably gossip about about Mary, you know, being pregnant before she, was, uh, before she was married. And there's rumors that God told her that this, you know, she was gonna have a virgin birth. They had enough information to be able to interpret that and even to know that this baby would be born in Bethlehem. They had all the information that they needed to know, but they were too busy to pay attention. And as a result, they did not notice that he had come. So, however, we choose to cope with this, the cracks in our life through, again, binging shows, alcohol, pornography, you you name the thing, Whatever, whatever way we choose, we can either cope with these cracks, we can try and ignore these cracks, but make no mistake, they will surface. Pressure will be applied. We will see them. No one can ignore the cracks and the fractures in our foundation forever. We can try and suppress it like I think the shepherds were doing. We can try and ignore it like the town was doing. But one day, either life is going to get tough or heaven is going to break in in some way. And those cracks, those fractures, they will be revealed. There is no faith. There is no Christianity. There is no Jesus for us if we don't first acknowledge the cracks in our foundation. And the Bible calls that repentance. Repenting of the ways we have created those cracks in our life through our own sin. And it is only when we see that that we can then hear the words of the angel, the angels, uh, the angel that he's, the words that the angel is saying to the shepherds. That's what, there it is. Verses 10, 11, fear not, For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that there will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord. It is only when we can acknowledge the cracks that we can hear fear not and understand the joy that is coming through this baby who is the one who would bring us peace. So how do we see that? How does Jesus bring the peace? The baby being born here isn't just a good man isn't just a prophet, isn't just a king, isn't just the most influential person who would ever be born and ever live the earth. And he was all those things. This baby being born according to the angels is the savior who would make peace between God and men and that peace that we have with God would then extend into every other area of our life. So this isn't a temporary happiness that's being promised here. And there, there are places we can get temporary happy, happiness in this life. What, what the angel is promising is a supernatural comfort that is deep within our gut that we sometimes can't even explain, that transcends whatever it is that's going on in our life. And I love the way that Luke opens this, this passage. And, you know, Every commentary, historian, and scholar is going to say the same thing. He's so detailed. You know, the the rulers and the places that he's naming here. He's he's communicating. This is a real story. I'm telling you where it happened, when it happened, the players involved. This is not Narnia, Middle Earth, or Pandora. You know, it doesn't start out once upon a time or a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Luke the Gospel writer, not Luke Skywalker. Luke, when, when, he, writes, when he writes this, he's saying, listen, this is, this, happened, this is happening in a real town called Nazareth, and th- there's a real guy named Quirinius who is the, the governor of that area, and he answers to the real historical figure, the greatest uh, Caesar, the greatest emperor who had lived to that date, Caesar Augustus. So, so Luke is setting this in reality, which is important for us to see. But I think he's doing something else very intentionally here. He's comparing and contrasting two people who are making very similar claims about themselves, and between whom the known world at that time and then eventually everybody else would have to choose between, Caesar or Jesus. That, he, he's setting this up right here in the beginning of his gospel. He's almost tauntingly, I think, comparing the most powerful man in the whole earth at that time with a baby sleeping in a trough. I mean, th- th- there's this comparison that he's developing because Caesar, everybody knew Caesar claimed to be king, Lord. He claimed to be a son of God. He actually took on the title Pontifus Maximus, which means high priest, Caesar Augustus brought such stability into the Roman Empire through the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, that people began to actually call him their savior. And we know, at least from from historical documentation, at least in the eastern part of the empire, they actually began to worship him as a god himself. And Luke knows where he's going to finish this gospel. Jesus one day is going to stand in front of Caesar's representative, Pontius Pilate, and Pontius is going to ask him a very important question. Do you remember what it is? Are you the king? That's the question that Pontius Pilate asks him. And there, there is a chance that, Augustus, that Caesar Augustus never even knew the name of Jesus Christ in his lifetime. But in just one generation, the Caesars would do everything within their power to obliterate this movement that had the audacity to claim Jesus as king over Caesar. And here's where this connects back to the cracks in the foundation. There is a battle raging inside all of us for kingship. Every day and every human being, a battle raging for who is actually king over our lives. Now, I'm not aware of any of us that are tempted to claim Caesar Augustus as king these days, but maybe it's politics or maybe it's the, the security of financial wealth, maybe it's making it in your career, maybe it's your marriage, maybe it's your children. We are naturally going to look for other things functionally to be king in our lives because we are asking that thing, can you give me the peace that I lack? Can you give me the peace that I'm looking for? And any of these things that we look to for peace outside of Jesus Christ will not only not give it to us in the long run, there may, and there may be a momentary there may be momentary happiness, but because those things will not give us the peace that we're asking them to give us, in the long term, it will actually accentuate the cracks in the foundation, the fractures in the foundation, and rob us of the joy and peace that God wants us to have. Because we're asking something to give us a peace that it cannot give us. But in this text... God makes it clear that Jesus is qualified. So these things that we ask to give us peace, they can't give us the peace because A, they don't control everything or in some cases anything, and B, they don't care about us. So we go to these false kings, ask them to give us everlasting deep peace, but these things are not in control and they don't care about us. But in this passage, we see a God who is in control of every aspect of this life, this world and our lives and cares about us. So God's control is, you might call it his providence or his omnipotence is on display all over this passage. I mean, just look at the timing of this birth, the timing of the birth of Jesus. I mean, it's perfectly timed in many ways. One, because Jesus comes in, in this period of Pax Romana, there's, because of the military, because of the, the peace that the military provides, because of the, war, the Roman you know, war machine creating these roads all over the empire, you could now, for the first time in human history, actually go in relative safety from town to town and country to country. So that's new. Second, there's a common language, okay? What good is going from town to town and country to country with news if you can't talk to the people? But now, because 300 years earlier, Alexander the Great had, cre- had made Greek the common language. So now you can not only go from town to town and country to country with the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can now communicate it to pretty much anyone. You can go all over the empire and tell them about the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is a first time thing in human history and that's when God decides that the baby's gonna be born. That's when the second person of the Trinity took on flesh and entered our world. God's providence is also on display through Caesar calling for a census that would actually fulfill the prophecy of Micah. So, Micah 5:2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel who's coming forth is from old, from ancient days. The only reason that Jesus is born in Bethlehem, humanly speaking, is because the emperor called for the census. So not only is God saying, I am providing a better king for you than Caesar, he's using Caesar to do it. I mean, he's God's control. His providence is all over this passage. And on top of all of this, the world, finally, because of God's work through Israel, has categories to understand who Jesus is and what he would do. We have categories like high priest, prophet, king, one atonement for many sins, God's presence coming to dwell with his people. These are categories that are well fleshed out. So God has been working in so many ways in human history for this to be the perfect time for Jesus to enter into the world. This is, what Paul, this is why Paul tells the Galatians in Galatians 4.4, 4, But when the fullness of time had come, this moment, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, the fullness of time that God has been working from every angle to make happen. God is the only one in control, which makes Jesus the only king who has any real power to fix the cracks in our foundation. But not only is he in control, he cares about us. And we can see this in the angel singing and praising him in verse 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among who? Those with whom he is pleased. I mean, we please God. He cares about us. This is, this is an emotional connection to us. So, if you grew up reading the King James or are just really a big fan of It Came Upon a Midnight Clear, you know, the, the, the way for centuries this verse was translated was peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Now, we know from all the texts that we have that the best translation is peace among those with whom He is well pleased. How in the world, though, do we please God? I mean, we know from the rest of the Scripture there's nothing we can do to please God, because we're sinful, because we're rebellious, but it is in this moment that pleasing God becomes possible because Jesus, this baby born in this town at this prophesied time, would live the life that we can't live. He is the son who would truly please God and when he gave his life on the cross to take the wrath that we deserve, he, in trading places with us, lavished us with his righteousness, we became in God's eyes, the same is Jesus, the perfect sinless child who has done no harm. So this boy coming into the world is the way that God is pleased with us. Now, it's not like he all of a sudden starts loving us when Jesus comes. His love preceded the pleasing and he accomplished the pleasure in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we become the apple of his eye. We are filled with the Holy Spirit because now we are an acceptable place for the Spirit of God to dwell. And when the spirit of the Prince of Peace comes into our lives, we can have peace in our spirit. And even if the world is in utter chaos, which it often is by the way, people feel like this is a new thing, like the chaos in our world, chaos is is the norm, really, of human existence. But even when it is chaotic, we can have peace because we know that we have peace with the God of the world who created this world, who will restore this world, and that God is pleased with us because of the work of Jesus Christ. And this is the only way that there can be peace between God and the wayward children who have dethroned him in their hearts. So this is how the cracks are healed. And when I say the cracks are healed, I don't want you to hear that this means life is gonna be easy, that there will be no trials coming in your life. That's not at all what the Bible promises. And in fact, if you were with us walking through Acts, you know that sometimes choosing to follow Jesus creates new problems and new challenges in your life. But what it means is that we now have access to a peace that is so powerful and so supernatural that it actually has the power when it comes into our life to drive out fear. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul is writing about to the Philippians. And does anybody remember where Paul was when he wrote to the Philippians? Your quiet group. Jail. He was in prison. So he's in prison with an inkling that he will die. And he writes, "...and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus." So this is a peace that Paul is experiencing. It's transcending every aspect of the turmoil and chaos of his life. Only in Jesus do we have a king who is in control of everything and who cares about us. So much so to accomplish his pleasure in us because of his love by taking on flesh and dying in our place. Not only dying, but in his death, taking on the wrath that we deserve. Can there be any question of the care and the love that God has toward us. So we have to choose. We choose who is it that's going to be a functional king of our life. and This is a decision that all of us have to make every day, whether you are a Christian or not. Because even as Christians, that we, we, we're constantly tempted to have other kings in our life, to look for other places to have peace. We, you know, I think the first place we look is often ourselves. (laughs) I think I'd make a great king for my life. We may not say it like that, but that's how we act, because I love myself a whole lot. (laughs) But I'm not really in control of anything. I mean, if you look at how little we actually control in this life, we're gonna make very horrible kings for our life. So then we're tempted to look at places like the bank account and ask it, will you be the king who's going to bring me peace? Or we look at our spouse, will you be the king who will bring me peace? We look at our children and say, will you bring me, be the king who brings me peace? We can look at our health and say, if I vet, invest in my health, will you be the king who brings me peace? And every one of those false kings will, in the long term, answer us as clear as day, no. That thing cannot be king of our life because it is not in control over everything and doesn't care about us. And isn't able to give us the peace that we desire. Only Jesus Christ can, who is in control of everything and loves us more than we even love ourselves. So we are confronted here with a holy king who is greater than Caesar. And this should produce a, at least a little fear in every sinful person when confronted with the glory of God. But in a totally countercultural and, and counterintuitive way, both in their context and ours. The king who we rightly fear cares about us. Caesar brought the Pax Romana to a limited area for a limited period of time, but Jesus is bringing peace everywhere forever. That's the work that was begun and a work that's still going on. He brings brings peace to the fear, to the longings in our hearts. He brings peace to the chaos and the injustice and the pains that surround us and He will fix, He will heal every crack in our foundation fully if we put our faith in Him. And if we do put our faith in Him, He doesn't stop there. He doesn't just save us from our sin. He then makes us an active part of His redemption of humanity. When we, are, when we become His children through faith in Jesus Christ, He then makes us heralds. Heralds of the one king who brings the peace that we look for. And to see this, we got to go back to the shepherds. So the angel tells them not to fear. Don't fear. You're not in trouble. (laughs) We're not here to catch you. We're here to tell you that a baby has been born, and this baby is a savior. So they go to see the savior. Now, in that culture, if you had a child, and especially if that child was a male, you would have hired some sort of herald to walk through the streets and announce the birth of your child. And depending on your wealth, these children were heralded in more or less elaborate ways. And so you know, if you think about it, it's not that much different than, than what we do today, only we, you know, my parents did it through cards, we do it through social media, but we still, we still herald the birth of our children. So this is not a new concept for us. So with that in mind, I want you to pay attention to verses 17 and 18. And when they saw it, that is the baby, they made known the saying that had been been told them concerning this child and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. Do you see what just happened? The shepherds are the one talking, they've become heralds. They're the ones proclaiming this thing that they heard from the angel and this baby who they now know to exist. And it's just what better heralds for the Savior than those who just a few verses earlier saw their need for saving in the most acute possible way. So those those shepherds who were in fear and maybe felt caught are now the same shepherds who are going around and heralding the birth of baby King Jesus. And this is important for us to see. Because the shepherds, they weren't guilted into being heralds of Jesus. (laughs) The angel didn't say, you guys are really messing up. You go herald Jesus and maybe, maybe things can be right down the road. That's not at all what's going. They have seen the glory of God. They've seen, they've heard the news of this promise being fulfilled in the baby Jesus. And what happens is that they have an emotional response, a spiritual response that just naturally overflows into heralding. In some ways, you could consider it the natural response to the, heal, to the healing of the cracks in their foundation. And so what do we call that response? That natural overflow of seeing God's grace enter, enter our life, to seeing the cracks and the fractures in our foundation and our souls being fixed, the peace coming into our souls, what do we call that? That natural response is worship. They're worshiping. I mean, there's a natural progression here to the shepherd's faith. They hear about Jesus, they go to see Jesus, then they worship Jesus. And in their worship, they become heralds. It's just part of what they're doing. They're worshiping, they're proclaiming. They don't huddle up together and come up with a strategic plan for evangelism. Not not that there's not a place for that, but what they're doing is just a natural overflow of their worship. They glorify God. They give Him praise, and in so doing, become an active part of His plan for the redemption of all people. So we can't look at this text without asking ourselves, is this true for me? Am I worshiping God in a way where, where the natural overflow is things like heralding the name of Jesus. Because I, I've been in churches and I've heard pastors beat the commitment drum. You know, If you guys were more committed, you'd give more and you'd share your faith more, you'd be holier, you wouldn't lie so much and steal so much if you were more committed to Jesus and the church. That's not Christianity. Christianity doesn't, doesn't communicate that. If we ever beat the commitment drum, if you ever hear me beating the commitment drum, we've already lost because Christianity is an overflow of worship for the one who has come to save us from our sin and already given us the peace that we look for. A Christian isn't a Christian because they give money or go to church or share their faith or don't lie or don't steal. That doesn't make a Christian. A Christian is someone who has been transformed by God's grace and now has a whole new set of desires because his spirit is dwelling in our heart. And now we don't wanna lie, we don't wanna steal. We want to give away money and be generous. We want to herald the name of Jesus Christ because we are worshiping God in our souls as a response to what He has already done for us. Do you remember in Acts 4, when Peter and John were brought in to the high priest, and the high priest said, You need to stop talking about Jesus. Alright? This whole thing can, can can go away. If you will just stop talking about Jesus right now. What do Peter and John say? That that was a real question. <laughs> what do Peter and John say? We can't help but speak. We can't help, and what they're doing is they're worshiping, they're worshiping Jesus. And it's really interesting to me because just a few verses earlier, these guys, these apostles, a few passages earlier, they were scattered, they were fearful, they had lost hope, and now they cannot help but herald the name of Jesus. What's changed? They've seen King resurrected Jesus for who he is. They are now worshiping in every aspect of their life, including heralding the King who came to bring peace. Peace first between God and us, and then a peace that will extend into every aspect of our life and to other believers, and in some cases, unbelievers. And I love the way that Luke is flipping the word gospel on its head here. Remember, Luke is confronting the Roman culture. He's confronting the idols of the culture. So this, this word that we have for gospel, it, it's not exclusive to Christianity. The, the, the Greek word for gospel, it means good news. And they would, there was a procedure when there was a new Caesar, there would be men assigned to go to different towns and they would go gospel the new Caesar. They would go and proclaim there is a new Caesar here. This this new Caesar is ordained by God. He is here and he is going to bring peace and prosperity to your lives. And this is the Caesar to whom you give allegiance. That was the thing. They were gospeling. But in Luke's gospel, he's saying that there is a king and it is not Caesar. And he's saying this new king that I'm telling you about, he's not sent by the gods. He is himself God. And he isn't coming to bring us a common language. He's coming to bring us a common heart. And he won't. He's, he's not here to provide safe, peaceful roads. This king is the only road to true peace and safety with God. And he won't help you simply cope with the cracks in your life. This king has come to fix them for all eternity. And so it is only when we embrace Jesus as the true king of our life, and when we adjust our lives and our minds and our souls to his kingship, that we have peace. Now, there's a first-time decision for that, that everyone who follows Jesus has to make. And maybe today is the first time that you make that decision, to make Jesus king of your life. But for Christians, all of us, every day, we're confronted with this kingship issue And and because we have the Holy Spirit in us, we're able to see the ways that we're tempted by, and, and even failing in giving kingship to other things because we ask that thing to give us a peace that only comes in Jesus Christ. And every Christian every day has the opportunity to repent of the functional kings in our life so that we can find the peace and satisfaction that we long for in King Jesus. And I want to really, finish with that. The more that we give our lives to the kingship of Jesus, the more we will be satisfied. The more we will have peace in our souls, the more fruitful we are going to be, the more we are submitted to the authority and the kingship of King Jesus. This is a stressful season. (laughs) That's our only hope. And and it's not just a hope for us. My hope is is that as we're interacting with people who don't have this hope, they would see it in us and that we would be equipped to tell them where the true source of peace lies. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for your Son, Jesus Christ, born to die for our sins and not in some kind of cosmic child abuse kind of way. Jesus is God. Lord, we pray that we would desire your kingship in our life. We pray that we would submit to your kingship in our life. And we pray that we would really see the sweet satisfaction of your kingship above all the other false kings that call to us like sirens. God, would that be clear today for each of us? And may we be fruitful heralds of you, because of the way your grace and your mercy and your supernatural love and peace have entered into our lives. We love you, and we praise you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.